Uh, J.D. Greer is the name of a, a pastor in um, North Carolina. He uh, also authored a book called Jesus Continued. It's a book about the Holy Spirit. I really recommend it to you. It's really, a really great book, Jesus Continued. In it, he tells this story. I'm not telling you this story because I necessarily espouse the outcome of it. It just got me thinking, and I thought it might get you thinking. So here, here's what he said. Uh, Toward the beginning of my ministry, I attended a special or a meeting for mission leaders led by a famous Christian leader. At the end of his talk, he invited those who wanted a special manifestation of God's presence to come forward so he could lay his hands on us. I genuinely didn't want to miss out on anything, so I went forward. And as the man moved down the row, I noticed at the end of his prayer, he'd give a little shove to each person on their forehead, and they'd crumple to the floor where they would lie spellbound for several minutes. So I whispered to God, God, I don't want to resist anything you want to do to me. In fact, I want more of you. I'm actually willing for you to humiliate me here. If, if you want to walk, knock my shirt off and tattoo John 3.16 on my back, I'm open to it. But I'm not letting that man push me down. As this anointed megaleader then prayed for me, I could feel his gentle pressure on my forehead. But it felt to me like his hand and not God's spirit, so I didn't voluntarily take a dive. His praying got louder, and the pressure of his hand got stronger, and I heard him mutter something about, God, you got something special for this one. By this point, I was having to push back on his hand with my head to keep from, him from pushing me over backward, but it sure felt like the pressure was coming from his hand, not God, so I stood my ground. Eventually, he gave up and moved to the next person who flopped right on cue. So was I missing something? I went home that night wondering if I'd missed a chance to experience the presence of God. So when I read that, uh, it intrigued me largely because I've heard a, a story from a friend, a guy I know, had known for years, that was very di- very similar story, but the ending was very different. My friend, kind of nominal in his Christian faith, I mean, not really that committed to Christ or the church. He was invited by another guy to go to a meeting on a Tuesday night somewhere in their town. And he was told that there's going to be a pastor there and he's going to preach some stuff, talk about God a little bit. And then at the end, he's going to come, ask people to come forward and he'll pray for them if, you want, if they want. My friend was like, yeah, okay, I got nothing else to do. So he went. When the guy was talking, he, he started, he said, I, I started to feel a sense that what he was saying had a particular application to me. And I found that his, his, the way he spoke really intriguing and what he had to say really intriguing. And I came to the end when, when he said, would anybody like to come and go get prayed for? He said, I, yeah, I, I would like that. So he went forward and he stood in a line similarly and noticed that people were being, had hands being laid upon them and some people were falling down. And he was thinking to himself, there's no way I'm going to stand up here in the middle of this room and have somebody push me over. That's ridiculous. I'm not doing that. When the guy came to him, finally he put his hand on his shoulder. He looked him in his eyes and he said, son, I think you need the Holy Ghost. And when he said the word Holy Ghost, my friend said, I don't know what happened. But the next thing you know, dude, I was on the ground. Like I had no, it's like some, some, something power just kind of shot through me and I got thrown back a little bit. The guy didn't, 
pushed me and I just fell down. And then he said, my biggest concern while I was laying there, I said, could you move? He said, no, I, I was just paralyzed. I was thinking, what an amazing experience. And then he, started, he said, at that point, I realized that my underwear was a little bit showing and I didn't want the girl who was next to me who I actually came to the thing to see, seeing my underwear. And that really freaked me out, but... Okay, two, two stories, two very different outcomes, so which is it? What should you expect from the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life? It won't surprise you that people take sides on this one, and you can usually tell which side you kind of lean to based upon which one of those two stories you really like, and which one you're kind of angry at. There are, there are those uh, who think that Christians should normally receive revelations and have profound experiences with the Spirit. In fact, they believe that when there's what they'd call a move of the Spirit that shows up through a teacher or pastor or even in a location, that it's actually a really good thing for you to drop the things that you're doing to make a pilgrimage to that location so you can receive that particular experience. In fact, most churches in this, this kind of vein will often bring pastors in who have what they call the anointing on them, and so when the pastor preaches, the Spirit moves, and they know the Spirit moves because people are feeling something profound in this particular moment when they, when they preach, invite all their friends, you should come, because our church is Spirit-filled, they'll say. And then there are others who think that such revelations and experiences are infrequent at best and largely non-existent. They love the first story, these others. They think, yeah, that's the way it works. I mean, most of the stuff is fake. It's usually the product of just a strong right arm from a manipulative pastor. And they don't like, these people, they don't like the insinuation that they're somehow less Christian because they haven't experienced all of that stuff. You're saying that I'm, I'm not really walking with the Spirit because I haven't fallen down someone or had a prophetic word spoken over my life? Followed Jesus for 20 years and I haven't had that. A friend, in fact, who went to a meeting of what was called the Full Gospel Business, Businessmen's Association, he was invited by somebody else, the group full of gospel businessmen's association. My friend didn't have a clue what that meant. So when he went, he heard them speaking and the guy at his table started to sh share with him that the reason they call it full gospel businessmen's association is that they believe that, yes, there's, there's the gospel message, but then there's the spirit's power that comes after the gospel message and it influences a particular person. And if you don't have that, you don't have the full gospel. My friend walked out. How dare you, he said say that I've been a Christian for all these years and that my devotion to Christ is somehow lacking because I haven't had this experience. Which is it? What should you normally expect from the Spirit's work in your life? We're in, the, in a series on the Holy Spirit. Um, these first two sermons in the series are um, more topical. They, I'm trying to answer the question, what's the, spirit, what's the Holy Spirit like? 
What, what is his character? If I were going to introduce my wife to you, I would describe certain character traits of her. I'm trying to describe certain character traits of the Holy Spirit to you. Last week, I covered a number of them. I talked about how he's a person and that he's God and a number of those sorts of, sorts of issues. And this week, I want to be more specific about his character and say, well, what kinds of character traits does he have that are of particular importance for you and your life with him? So I've got three of those. Uh, one, you need to know that he's an empowerer. Second, that you need to know he applies our redemption to us. And then third, you need to know he's our guide, right? So what should you expect from the Holy Spirit? You should expect him to empower you. You should expect him to apply redemption to you. And you ex should expect him to guide you. So I want to talk about each one of those and make you mad. So ready? Here we go. Number one. He's an empowerer. So uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church in the book of Acts, right, which is the book about the Holy Spirit and his work through the apostles. When the Holy Spirit comes upon them, he does it for a reason. He comes upon them, not so they can just have feelings about stuff, but there's a purpose for his coming upon them. So here's what I want to do. I want to show you in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2 the purpose of the Holy Spirit's coming. So here's Acts 1, verse 6 to 8. So Jesus has been resurrected. He's giving a commission. He's speaking to his disciples now about what's going to happen now. And he says, then, that, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What they expected this moment is, you've been resurrected, great victory, heaven's here now, yes? So what, what needs to happen, Lord, for the heaven to come? Jesus' response, um, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So that's his way of saying, not yet, and you probably aren't going to know. But, verse 8, you, in this present time, so what should you do? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the you have a job to do, a mission that I've given you, and in order to achieve it, the Holy Spirit is going to empower you so that you can be my witnesses. You've got to wait here, and the Spirit will come. So they twiddle their thumbs for a little bit, and then in Acts chapter 2, you see the fulfillment. Acts 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Yeah, you know what that's like, yes? Yes? Yeah. The blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So this is an indoor wind. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So like fire and little pillars coming down upon them. It's what it looked like. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, you need to understand that the other tongues that they're speaking on this occasion is known languages. It would be like me all of a sudden speaking German to you. I don't know German. But just kind of the Spirit taking my words right now, and I'm intending English, but it's coming out German. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, verse 5, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. bewilderment. That's a good word. It's German. 
It's already happening, right? Because each one heard their own language being spoken. Now, Luke is writing this once to get to the point that, look, guys, it's, we're not just talking about one language. We're talking about all sorts of languages coming upon different disciples. So this disciple speaking German, that one's over there French, and this one over here Russian. So he gives you a list of the different languages and regions that the people were from. Utterly amazed, verse 7 Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? It's a way of saying, by the way, uh, that uh, they're stupid. Galileans were thought to be kind of backwater people, right? It's like us saying, aren't they all from Kelowna? I'm kidding. Ah, I'd say love, love. If I were in Vancouver, I would have said Abbotsford, wouldn't I? Yeah. Aren't these people from Abbotsford? How can they possibly know these other languages? They're not that erudite and smart. How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? And so here's his list. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, all of them. So amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what what does this mean? And of course, there are a few among them, the cynics, who made fun of them and said, "Ah, they've had too much wine. Drunkenness does crazy things to you, right? And then Peter, verse 14, stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then he boldly proclaims the gospel to all of these people. So the Spirit has come upon them. Why? For the mission. The power that they've received from the Spirit is to accomplish the desire that the Spirit has in the mission. And then when the Spirit comes and he fills these people, guys, I gotta tell you, the boldness is remarkable. They start saying things to people that they probably shouldn't say. And by shouldn't say, I mean, it's gonna get them in hot water. So let me give you a couple examples, two of my favorites throughout the book of Acts. So uh, Peter and John in Acts 4 are pulled in because they start proclaiming that Jesus is the only way to salvation. They say this, and they get pulled in by the ruling religious authority called the Sanhedrin. It's like the ruling religious council who have authority over this Jewish group. So the government pulls them in and says, hey, you guys need to stop saying this stuff or we're we're gonna get you. Peter says that in their faces, look, you tell us, should we obey you or God? Well, I don't know, but if you keep talking, you're going to be in trouble. So they release them because they don't have any reasons to hold them. They release them. These guys go immediately back to their friends. Listen to what happens in Acts 4, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Listen to this prayer. Sovereign Lord, the Lord who knows and controls all things, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed ones. In other words, this is a psalm. And you told us a long time ago that there would be a time when the rulers of the earth fight back against the anoint, your anointed servant. 
So indeed, verse 27, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So we're living in the moment that is a fulfillment of what you predicted. Sovereign Lord. This is not a surprise to you, what we're experiencing In fact, verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word of your, the word uh, with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they'd prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and all were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God boldly, right? Because when the Spirit fills you, you speak boldly, even if the government says stop. Even if it's going to cost your life. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Power of the Holy Spirit. He'll make it. He'll make it so. And so... The Spirit comes upon the Apostle Paul on an occasion a little bit later, and Paul's going on his little mission trip, and he's planting churches all over the place with his friend Barnabas. So in Acts 16, in Acts 16, verse, or sorry, Acts 13, verse 6, they, Paul and Barnabas, traveled through the whole island, island of Cyprus, until they came to Paphos, which is the main, main city. It's Victoria. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. So you listen, you need to understand the characters here. What you've got is the proconsul. He's the governor, right? he's the premier, he's John Horgan, and he wants to hear from these guys about the word of God. He wants to hear about Jesus from them. But the, he's got this little attendant, this little... Helper who's over in the side, <laughs> long feet. I don't want you to hear that at all. Like he's a sorcerer. And so, Elemis, the sorcerer, verse 8, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from faith. Don't listen to them, my pretty. They're not speaking from God. And then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what happens when the Spirit fills you, looked straight at Elymas and said, you're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. I've wanted to say this to so many people, <laughs> right? Or I guess I'm not Spirit-filled. But like, this is what has Spirit comes. He's in, the, he's in the governing chambers and he's speaking straight to in the presence of the premier to his confidant. You're the devil, man. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're, you're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about, about the Lord. This is the way it works. The Spirit comes upon us so that we can fulfill the mission. And when that Spirit comes upon us to fulfill the mission, boldness is the mark of it. So J.D. Greer he summarizes all. He says, the book of Acts tells the mind-blowing story of how a group of underqualified, mostly blue-collar workers filled with the Holy Spirit can turn the world upside down. 
We're still reeling from that first Christian century. New Testament scholars have pointed out that when later Christians gave a name to the book of Acts, they probably chose the wrong title. Rather than Acts of the Apostles, many say it should instead be Acts of the Holy Spirit. They say this because even a quick read of the book of Acts reveals that the Spirit of God is the primary actor. See, he guides, he speaks, he moves. The disciples are simply trying to keep up. And despite themselves, he slowly drags them to victory. It it becomes readily apparent that the Holy Spirit, not them, is the one accomplishing the mission outlined for them in Acts 1-8. Now, listen, I tell you all of that because... And we we get together as a church and we talk about how we want to be a church that renews other churches and plants other churches and sees a a gospel renewal in our country. And I got to tell you, that is a huge hill filled with difficulty. And if you don't believe that, ask other churches that have tried to do the same thing. It's filled with opposition and difficulty and personal sacrifice and all sorts of things. And I got to tell you that when you look at the side of that, when you stand at the foot of that hill and you say, there's the mission, you're like, "Eh, there's no way. There's not enough money. There's not enough time. There's not enough effort. There's not enough. There's not enough. I mean, unless we're not the one climbing it. Unless there's another power a bold power that, that can fill us. I have a friend, um, I think I've shared this before, who was, uh, had his little boy out chopping wood with him. I went over to the house, sometimes I was in Europe at what point, and uh, his little boy was chopping wood with him. He had a little, one of those little hatchets, little axes, and the little boy wasn't very strong. He had one-armed one it, and he, he was hitting the top of the wood. And the, I mean, the hatchet was pretty dull, so it was bouncing off. But his dad was standing behind him, and as soon as the son would do that, he'd pull his axe back, and his father would whoo, cut it right in half. And the father would say, look what you did. And the kid would go, ah, he's so excited. He's kind of dumb, this kid. Anyway, <laughs> then he'd go up again and go to the next one, bonk, come off, right? And he might sometimes make a little tiny split in it. But then the father's axe, whoo, you know that this is what it's like, right, to, to, to work for Jesus. You got your little hatchet there, baby, swinging with all your might, sweat coming down. Look at me, follow you. Hey, blink. And then the Holy Spirit's like, and he splits it in half. I was in a behind here a while ago. You know, there's moments in ministry that are hard moments in your life that are hard. You start facing those hills and you start feeling like maybe this is all a waste and it's not going well. How is it that you help lead a church like this and it's all the challenges and all these things and I was, had to come up and preach and I was really down. <laughs> my friend Kyle, one of our pastors who seems to be my friend in dark moments, he came up to the, looked me in the eye. He'd seen that look before. We've known each other for 20 something years and he quietly walked over next to me and he put his arm around me and he whispered in my ear, Jeff, it's God's church. Yeah, it's God's church. I've got this little hatchet, Kyle. You should see me swing it. <laughs> every, time, every time I ever preach any, anywhere, I do what, what Charles Spurgeon 
did, a great preacher, Baptist preacher of the 19th century, he used to be said that he would, when he climbed into his pulpit, they'd stairway that used to go into the pulpit where he'd preach. And every step along the way, he would stop, pause for a second and say, I, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And he'd climb up and he'd boldly proclaim the gospel because that's what you need. Look, I know that there are probably hills in front of you that God has placed in your race right in front of you. And I'm gonna tell you the way you get through this is that you, you are provided the power of God by the Holy Spirit to fill you. You are not alone. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he will give you the power you need. So you walk forward step by step in his mission and we will see God move in our day. So he's, he's an empowerer. He's also the applier of our redemption. So I was at a conference and I was speaking to a guy at my table. It was a kind of a working conference thing. I got to know this guy. We we're talking about our different churches. After me describing my church and him describing his church and stuff, he said he was plagued with a question for me. So around lunchtime, he asked me this question. We just met. He asked me this question. He said, um, Jeff, I don't know you, but I feel like I want to ask you this. Is the Holy Spirit welcome in your church? And I, I thought, okay, that's an interesting question. I mean, my answer to him was, man, I hope so. But I asked him to explain what he meant, and he explained it the way I thought that he would explain it, given his particular background and, and thinking. But I thought it was an interesting question. What makes it, what makes a church spirit-filled? What makes a church welcoming to the, to the Holy Spirit? And how do you know that you've been in a church like that? Now, I've been in a, around the Christian community long enough to know that I think, I think the answer, if you're walking out of a church service and, and someone asks you, what do you think? And if your answer is, oh, the Holy Spirit was there, and they say, well, why, how do you know? Your answer would probably be because I felt it. In fact, I would say that in large part, most of us say that the Holy Spirit's presence is marked by our feeling his presence. So we, we even pray prayers some like this, Holy Spirit, come. And what, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean come and help us to feel that you're here. Give us a whoosh of come, some, some variety, just to know that this is a spirit-filled moment. So I've been around... Um, in some settings where, where, where that's become a very poignant um, perspective. I was at a conference, uh, sorry, I, not, I was just visiting a church in New York City with some friends. Uh, I was having some meetings with some other church leaders there and uh, we went to one, one, of the, one, one of the churches I've always wanted to go to in my life, Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Tim Keller is the name of the pastor there, or has been the name of the pastor there for years. Tim Keller, he basically mentored me without knowing it. Uh, my sister-in-law went to his church and used to send these, these tape cassettes to me in New Zealand, and I would listen to them in my little pink Honda. I was driving around all the time, and I listened to this guy's sermons all the time, and I would pray, Lord, help me to do at least a little bit of what he does. So when I got the opportunity to go to New York City, uh, we decided to go to his, his church. Uh, Ezra and I were together, and we sat in the front row, right? Because those who love Jesus are in the front row. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there we are, front row. He's right, right in front of us. The whole service is going on. I'm 
Some people who were with us were about four or five rows back. And they were sitting there in their little gaggle of folks. It's a Presbyterian church, and, and the service we were at, where it was a traditional Presbyterian liturgy. I grew up in that kind of setting, and so uh, the Presbyterians, if they felt anything, they would think that something was wrong, right? So they, they you know, everything, most things are red. It's done with a guy in a tie and a suit, and it goes all the way through. The, the liturgy, the, the, the order of the service is what we mean by that, is beautiful. It, if you know what they're trying to do, it's quite, it's quite beautiful and engaging, However, if you don't know what they're trying to do, it can feel quite dry. Then Tim Keller comes up and he preaches his sermon, which was fantastic. There were points at which he's getting a little excited. And I was like, oh, Tim, just spit on me, man. I'm just loving it. This is great. I'm, it's good. It's good. At the end of the service, I turned to Ezra and I said, my heart is so full, brother. Not just from the preached word, but from the whole thing. And it's different than what we, what we do, what I do. Probably not the kind of service that I would probably organize, but I tell you what. My heart is so full. Well, I turned around and I saw some of the guys who were with me. One of the guys who was with me, he was, had his arms crossed and he was shaking his head like this, looking at me in a very disappointed face. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, I don't think the Holy Spirit has ever come to this church. So I asked him, what do you mean by that? He said, well, as you leave today, have you felt anything? Right. Right, so... So that's our assumption, that the Holy Spirit is in the feels. We know that the Holy Spirit's there when we, when we, when we feel the thing. I, I'm involved in sometimes dealing with, with church planters and others. I've heard so many church planters talk about the stories and why it is that they want to be a church planter because they were in a particular part of their city and overlooking the city or something and the tears came to their eyes and they looked at it and they thought, oh, God wants me to do this particular work. I've also sat in some meetings where church planters have said, they've been asked, well, why do you want to plant a church? And, and they, they say, well, I, some friends have told me I'd be good at it. And the conversations that are had behind the scenes about these respective church planters are, of course the spirit is talking to the first one because they cried. But the second one, I don't know. I mean, the story's a little bit dry. How do we know the spirit's in it? And I'm just saying that that's, we think that way because we believe that the Holy Spirit largely is in the feeling of it. Now, here's why I bring all of this up. I think that our tendency to reduce the Spirit's work down to what we feel him doing is so wrongheaded. I am not suggesting that the Spirit doesn't do stuff that we feel. I am suggesting he does way more than what you feel. So to judge a church or anything else by what you feel is really missing the majority, in fact, of what the Spirit does. You say, well, what, what, tell me what the majority of the Spirit does. Actually, the majority of what the Spirit does is the application of your redemption. He takes the, the gospel and he applies it to you. So when you come to faith in Jesus, that's how it happened. The Holy Spirit gave you eyes to see. So Acts 16, 14. One of those listening was a, to Paul preaching was a woman from a city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. See, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. You're a Christian here. If you're a Christian here today, the reason you're a Christian and the reason you say is, why is it that I see it and others don't? Because the Holy Spirit is giving you eyes to see and ears to hear. He was actively involved and he continues to be actively involved in giving you eyes to see and ears to hear. And he didn't leave you alone. He started there, but now he's doing a 
continual, daily, regular, transforming work in your life. And so, for example, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You're being transformed into the image. It's like the Holy Spirit has taken an image of Jesus, a sculpture of Jesus, and he is sculpting you, but you're this big block of ugly clay. And he's like, okay, I'm just gonna knock off everything that doesn't look like Jesus here. And so even in the quietest moments of your life, the Spirit is doing his work. You wanna know if you're Spirit-filled? You having any trouble lately? Spirit's working on you. You learning something about God? You growing in grace? Do you see it happening? Do you see conviction of sin in your life? That's the Spirit. Actively involved in your life. So what I'm saying is that there's never a moment in your Christian life that the Holy Spirit isn't working with you. And sometimes we feel it. So you have a passage like Romans 8, 16. See, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. There's a commentator on that passage who says that, listen, what, what he's describing is like a father walking down the street with his kid, and he's holding hands with his child, and, you know, it's his son. And he just looks, the father looks down at his son, is just delighted that he's with his son. And so there's this moment where he picks the son up, and he twirls him around, and he holds him close, and he says... I love you, boy. I just, I'm so happy to be with you, son. Now, was the son a son prior to the twirl? Was he a child prior? Yes, of course he was. Is he more a child because of this? No. But what happened then? Well, the spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. There's a feeling in there. So in moments in your life, there are going to be these moments where you're like, oh, I feel the presence of God reaffirming to me that I am his. And it's glorious. But that doesn't mean, if you don't feel it, that God's not doing his consistent application of redemption in your life. You ever, you ever been to a dam? If you look at a dam, there, on, the, on the top is there like a frothy water oftentimes. If you go to a dam, you're like, whoa, look at the power of the water going through. You know, it's spilling over the top. And it's creating this all froth on the top. That's not actually, that's remarkable. And it's part of what the dam does. But do you know where the power, you know where the power is in a dam? It's under the surface. It's consistent and it's always happening as those turbines are being turned by the power of the water and you don't always see it. But you turn your lights on because it's happening. Listen, the Holy Spirit is consistently at work. Don't ever think that the Holy Spirit is not working in your life, that you haven't had an experience of the Spirit because you didn't feel it. Sometimes we feel it, but he's always working. All right, last one. He guides. You guys are gonna have to listen quicker than what you're doing. All right? He guides. I'm gonna make you mad now. Here we go. Um, there's a story from a book that I will not give you the name of because I, the book makes me mad. So <laughs> his story about a guy who he and his family are going to go out and they're going to buy a Christmas tree. They usually buy the Christmas tree on the Saturday after the U.S. Thanksgiving weekend, right? So that's late November. On this one year, even though they felt in their hearts that they probably should go and do it that day because it's what they've always done, they decided instead, we're not going to do it that way this year. We're going to wait till next week because we're tired after Thanksgiving. They waited till next week. 
when they went to go get the tree on their property, which was a long distance away and up in the mountains, uh, everything went wrong. Like the car ended up in the ditch, daughter was frozen from the waist down, battery of the car wore out. Instead of it taking like a three hours to get the tree, it took them like 15 hours to get the tree and they came home exhausted in the evening. And they sat down on the couch, he did with his wife, and he looked at her and said, what happened there? And she said, I don't think we listened to the Spirit of God. He told us, she said, to go the week before, but we didn't listen, and so we went the week later, and therefore we were not hearing him properly. He describes it this way. He said, the weekend God told us to go was a gorgeous weekend. No snow, sunny skies, no wind. The whole event would have been delightful, but no, we had to do things our way. How does the old hymn go? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The whole ordeal could have been avoided if had we simply listened. So is that how it works? Is walking with Jesus and walking with the Holy Spirit is the normal way that that takes place is that God has a desire for you in non-moral circumstances, meaning like uh, when you should get your Christmas tree or whether you should turn left or right at a particular light that you need to tap into in order to be hearing him rightly. Is that what you should expect from him? Gerald Sitzer in his book, uh, The Will of God as a Way of Life, says yes. Here's how he summarizes it. He says, the conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway we should follow into the future. God knows what the pathway is, and he's laid it out for us to follow. Our responsibility is to discover this pathway, God's plan for our lives. We have to discover which of the many pathways we could follow is the one we should follow. The one God has planned for us. If and when we make the right choice, we'll receive success and happiness. If, though, we choose wrongly, we may lose our way, miss God's will for our lives, and remain lost forever in an incomprehensible maze. You can be in the center of God's will by listening to his extra-biblical commands about non-moral things, or you can be outside of it. You, man, you, if you want to be, you should be in the center, because things are going to go badly outside. All of that has led one author to reflect on it. He said, we fear that if we make the wrong decision, we'll mess ourselves up for life. Like one of those choose your own adventure books where you make some arbitrary decision like who to sit next to on the bus that results in marriage to a beautiful princess on your own island in the Caribbean, while the opposite choice leads to your slow, painful death by flesh-eating bacteria in a South American prison. <laughs> so we start to obsess. What if I choose the wrong option? What if I go to college A, but God planned for me to go to and meet my wife at college B? Does this mean I'm, I'm going to be single the rest of my life? And what if I make the right choice, but she makes the wrong one? Can she already ruin things for me? I'm not even married yet. <laughs> so, so we peer into our hearts as into a magic eight ball, nearly hyperventilating as we look for the one spirit answer to various questions. Listen, I've heard people describe this as the normal way that you should be experiencing the spirit and saying, listen, you need to tune into Holy Spirit Radio. You gotta get your antenna up. Well, how do you do that? Well, I've got four easy tricks that'll make it happen, they'll say. Come to my meeting. And I'll tell you, I'll write my book, and you can buy it, and you can find out how it is that you can listen to the Holy Spirit better than what you're currently doing, so that you can know what he wants you to do in non-moral circumstances. So here's my question. Is that the way the Bible describes walking with the Spirit? And here's my argument as we finish. In the New Testament, 
the guidance of the Holy Spirit in non-moral decisions is not normally something Christians seek. Rather, they commit themselves to the revealed will of God and remain open to the Spirit's interruption. I'll say it again. In the New Testament, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in non-moral decisions, you know what I mean by that. I'm not talking about whether or not you should cheat on your wife or not. There is a clear desire of the Spirit there. You should seek the Spirit's desire in that regard. But in non-moral decisions, in the New Testament, the guidance of the Holy Spirit is not normally something Christians seek. Rather, they commit themselves to the revealed will of God and remain open to the Spirit's interruption. And so you find some really cool examples of this kind of thing happening in Acts. In fact, the whole book of Acts is basically this. It's the book of the Holy Spirit and people walking with the Spirit. So here's how they do it. Uh, the Apostle Paul, Acts 18, he's in the city of Corinth, and things aren't going well there. He's preaching the gospel. A lot of people aren't believing, and he decides, you know what? I think I might move on, go to the next town where people might hear a little bit better. So one night, Acts 18, verse 9, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. No one's going to attack you or harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. See, he was going down the path. God had given him a commission to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He was doing that work, trying to figure out where to stay and where not to stay, and the Spirit interrupts. One of my favorite texts along those lines, Acts 16, verse 6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. How did that happen? I don't know, they tried to go to Asia, but they were stopped. Maybe somebody got a bad tummy bug. Maybe they got a prophetic word. Maybe, I don't know, but this whole, he says, look, the Holy Spirit stopped us from going there. And when they came to the border of Mysia, verse 7, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to. I don't know, maybe the border guard took on the form of Christ. It was like, you shall not pass. I don't know. But somehow, the Spirit stopped them from going where they had planned. So during the night, verse nine, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel. And you see how this works? I used to ski at moguls before the days of snowboarders, snowboarders ruined moguls, just so you know, like that's what, they ruin most things, but especially moguls, right? So like you're skiing and then there's these moguls there and you used to, the way you ski moguls is that you, you pick a line. You stand at the top and you look down and you say, look, if, okay, I'm gonna start there, I'm gonna hit off that mogul, that mogul, that mogul, that mogul, that mogul. Avoid the snowboarder who's sitting there pushing all the snow down into the crevice so you can't do this. So anyway. And you start. That's my plan. It's a good plan. Looks good. Boom, 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 boom. Knees like a spring. Boom, 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 boom. Inevitably, the snowboarders show up, right? The spirit of the snowboarders divert you, right? They right across. Hey, what's up, man? <laughs> I'm right across your lane. So what do you do? <laughs> After screaming at them, you go, I go, a new line. Then another one comes, new line, new line. You get to the bottom. It wasn't what you planned to be, but it was still fun. Listen, I'm telling you, this is the way it works. I, I can't, do you know how many Christians I talk to who are burdened with false guilt because they think they're missing out on the best God's will for their life? 
If you're not sinning, you're fine. Love God, do what you want. Pick a line, pick a line. The Lord will, he'll, he'll guide you. That's the way it works. He likes to drive moving cars. So stop sitting there in your garage going, tell me, Lord. <laughs> hey, next week we're gonna talk about spiritual gifts and that's gonna be controversial. So you should come back <laughs> for that, right? All right, let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace and your interrupting kindness to us to bring about some results that we don't always expect, but they're always wonderful because you're always wonderful. Your spirit is so great. Thank you for his empowering. Thank you for his application of redemption, his promise to bring us safely home to harbor as we're tossed by the storm. We love him and thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.